In these opening chapters of John's Gospel, we are shown that the person and ministry of Jesus exceeds the expectations of God's people. He meets our deepest needs. The the first half of John's Gospel, which is our focus in this sermon series, is is the pictures that God gives, the signs, the miracles that Jesus performs, which point us to the truth of who he is who Jesus is, and why he came. We saw last week the calling of the disciples, and now we come with Jesus to Cana in Galilee to see the first of Jesus' signs. John chapter 2, I'll read verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This... The first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let me pray that God would apply his truth to our lives. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the clarity of your word, for the ministry of our Savior. And Lord, Though some of us come with burdens so heavy, we struggle to listen, to hear your truth. Some of us come with doubts that seem insurmountable. And so, Father, I pray that in the reading and preaching of your word, your spirit would would act powerfully in our hearts and lives, that you would give us an understanding which comes from you. Lord, that we would have clarity in the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done that you would meet us in our time of need, that you would answer our questions with your truth. Father, we come praying in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. For the first display of his glory, the miracle at Cana is kind of disappointing. I mean, we'd expect a bigger sign than this. Something more powerful. Because in John chapter 1, we've already been introduced to who Jesus is. He is the Word of God. The Word became flesh. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of Israel. And so surely there could be a bigger miracle to start with than helping his mom with a catering need at a wedding. I mean, there are clearly greater needs all around him. 
There are the sick and the blind, the dying, the the poor, the needy. But instead, his first miracle is helping a bride and groom avoid some social embarrassment. Helping them avoid having the neighbors look down on them and think, boy, they didn't really plan this all that well. We surely expect something bigger, something grand and powerful, something great and mighty. And yet, here, we're told this is the first of his signs. A, A picture of something greater. And so while the details are written small, it's It's like a calling card, a business card that tells us who Jesus is and what he's done. Here in John chapter 2, the the card is only handed out to a few. The master of the banquet doesn't even know of the miracle. The, The bridegroom himself doesn't know that something miraculous has taken place. The servants know. The disciples know. His mother knows. But we, when we read it, we we can see, even if it's printed in small letters, the miracle itself is pretty small. It shows us who Jesus is and what he has come to do. Pastor Tim Keller points out that, that and and he's quoting a skeptical scholar, a liberal theologian, who says that you would never invent a first miracle as simple as this. If you were making this up, you would start with something big and great, something that shows you the power and the majesty and the grandeur of the one who stands before you. If you want to prove him to be a miracle worker, then start with something big, something noticeable, something grand and public. And yet, Jesus' first sign is small. This first miracle is little. And I don't mean it's small in that I could do it. I mean, I'm not capable of doing it. I mean, only a handful of people see it. It's it's the amount of wine that you, I mean, it's the the amount of liquid you'd fill a kiddie pool with, like one of those little five-foot, one-foot-high kiddie pools. Now, don't go home and fill a kiddie pool with wine. That's not safe for anyone involved. Just use the hose. But but it's, it's it's, it's that small of a miracle. I mean, you can contain it in six jars. And yet... It shows us something of who Jesus is. It shows us that he is in the business of pouring out grace on people. He gives what what we cannot provide for ourselves. The, The miracle here saves the bride and groom, saves the groom's family from social embarrassment. Now, you and I might think of a, a wedding as 20 or 30 minutes in a sanctuary and then a few hours in a reception hall. But, but in an ancient Jewish village, the wedding would take days, possibly even a, a whole week of celebration. This is the big event. Everybody comes together. And for the groom's family to have failed to prepare for this moment, to, meet, to fail to meet the needs of their guests, would bring shame upon them. And in a society that so highly prized the honor, this would be a, a significant, a significant uh, weakness for them. And so we have the mother of Jesus. We know her name. It's Mary. She's never actually named in John's gospel. Maybe because John has enough Marys he wants us to keep track of that there are so many Marys. You know, if you stepped out as a, as a, in, the, in an ancient Jewish village and called for Mary to come, you'd have little girls from lots of households show up. It was a common name in the, in the first century. 
And it's common in the gospel. And so we're just told that, that, that she is the mother of Jesus. And she shows up, and in verse 3, she announces the problem. They have no wine. And yet Jesus is one who, in this first miracle, as small as it is, shows that he pours out his grace extravagantly. The miracle takes place at a distance. We don't have any indication that Jesus even puts his hands on any of the jars or, or is involved in, in any of the, the, the miracle itself. What happens is the servants are sent with a, with a scoop of the water now become wine to the master of the feast. He doesn't know the details of what's taken place. He's just given it to taste. This is what we have now to serve. And so he, unknowingly, that a miracle has taken place, calls the, the bridegroom himself. And look at verse 10. He says to the bridegroom, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. See, not only is the bridegroom and his family, are they saved from embarrassment, but notice who gets credit for this extravagance. The groom. Now, it might be that he has no idea really what's going on, that he has lost track of many of the details of, of planning, that, that we're probably several days into this celebration, and so he doesn't know the order that the wine was supposed to have come out, and so he just maybe takes it as a compliment and, and moves on. See, the miracle is so small that only the servants, only Jesus' disciples, know that it has happened. But maybe that in itself is a helpful reminder to us, that there is nothing too small for us to bring to Jesus. The concerns of one family in this one little village in Galilee. The town is small enough that if you tried to go visit today, archaeologists and historians wouldn't be sure if you were in the right spot. We, we have a place on the map, and there are some, some remains there that we think this is probably Cana in Galilee, but it was, it's so insignificant that it was lost to history. And yet, the concerns here are important enough for Jesus to respond to. Whatever we take to Jesus matters to him. You may think, why would Jesus care about me? Why would he, why would he be concerned about my family? Why would he be worried about my job and the struggles that I face or, or my health concerns? Well, so you see, in this miracle, there is nothing too small to bring to Jesus. His mother brings it to him. They have no wine. She expects the miracle to happen. Do what he tells you to do. And then in God's grace, we see that we get more than we deserve. The bridegroom gets more than he even realizes. He doesn't even understand the depth of the, the power of what's taken place. So Jesus is in the business of grace, of giving us what we don't deserve. Now Mary notices the problem. She identifies it for Jesus they have no wine. And when we read verse 4, Jesus' response back to her, in English, it sounds really harsh. He, he says to her, look at verse 4, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, first of all, I can't ever imagine saying that to my own mother. Like, that would be the last thing I ever said. Woman, what is this? Because in English, it sounds so harsh. Now, in the Greek, and, and the, the conversation probably even took place in Aramaic, in the Greek, it's, it's polite, but, sort of in, it, it, but a little bit more formal. It's the way that you could, it, there, there's nothing sinister in it, there's nothing 
there's nothing wrong with what he says. There's no disrespect, but it's the way that you could speak to a stranger, even. Now, one commentator, he he says, think of it if if in the American South, that you could say, yes, ma'am, to your mother. It'd be slightly more formal, but it's not impolite. Now, here, if I said that to my mother, it would sound impolite. I remember having a, a high school teacher who, who made sure that we treated her with respect, and, and we had a student who transferred in from Texas, and he would yes ma'am her all the time. And she constantly said, you need to stop. Because when you say it, like when you grow up in New Jersey and you say yes ma'am, it doesn't sound polite. But Jesus is, is speaking at a distance, the way you could speak to a stranger, but there's no disrespect, there's no sarcasm, there's no... There's no anger or venom in his, in his words. And we know that because then there's another time that he'll address her in exactly the same way. It's in John 19. When nailed to the cross, when dying, he looks to John, the disciple, the beloved disciple, and he looks to his mother, and he places his mother in the care of this disciple. Woman, behold your son. And then to the disciple, behold your mother. Yes, we know all those words can be spoken with tenderness and affection. We also know that Mary doesn't take any offense at it because of the way that she responds. She doesn't correct him. She just turns to the the servants and says, do whatever he tells you to do. It's as if she's saying, let the miracle proceed. And, and, and it's not that she has, has anticipated that, well, she's seen Jesus perform lots of miracles. No, remember, John tells us this is the first of Jesus' signs. It's not that she even has some, some supernatural insight as to what will come when we flip through the rest of the gospel. No, what does she have? She has the Old Testament promises of God. She has the announcement of an angel who came to her to tell her that she would give birth to the Messiah to the Savior, the Rescuer. And so she knows that here now, the public ministry of Jesus is beginning, and so she can turn to the, the, the servants and say, it's time for the miracle. Do whatever he tells you to do. But Jesus not only speaks to her by, by calling her woman, he asks a question in verse 4. What does this have to do with me? Literally in the Greek, he's just saying, what to you and me? A, a common expression that, that it, it, you, could, you just shrug off, like, it doesn't matter. It's unimportant. I mean, like, when you look at the problem we're facing here, that they're going to run out of wine, this isn't a crisis. Like, this is a s- small social problem that'll, that'll impact people in this village, but it's not a big deal. And even if it is, I'm not running the party. I'm on the guest list. I'm one of the people who will be offended by this. I haven't caused any of the offense. So what does this have to do with me. And then we see with clarity what Jesus is speaking of when he says, my hour has not yet come. Now again, in English, it almost sounds like he's, he's sort of baiting us to like beg for a miracle. Like, I'm not going to do a miracle just yet. But if you just wait, I mean, if you really want a miracle, if you ask nicely, then I'll do it. No, what he's saying is, my hour has not yet come. Which hour is he speaking of? Well, when you read through the rest of the Gospel of John, that phrase, the hour, is speaking of the hour of his death, the appointed purpose for which he came. See, Jesus, even in, the, in these, these words, is handing us his calling card, which describes who he is. The Savior of extravagant grace, 
but the one who will give his life in the place of sinners. Jesus is declaring that, that his service, his actions, will be determined solely by his Father's will. His Father in heaven, the purpose for which he was sent. His loyalty to family, his love and admiration of his mother won't, won't prompt a miracle. What will bring about the miracle is the purpose for which the miracle points. Remember, John calls it a sign. It, it signifies something more important. To, to understand the sign, you have to see what it's pointing toward. And Jesus says what it's pointing toward. His hour. The purpose for which he came. And so in Jesus' explanation to his mother, even in his question to her, but in that statement, my hour has not yet come, we see his purpose. But then his actions, the miracle itself, displays the coming of the great wedding feast of the Messiah. John calls these miracles signs, that they have a significance that goes deeper than the action that you see taking place. It's not just a, a display of raw power to, to, so that we, we bow at Jesus and say, wow, that was amazing. It, it, it's, not a, it's not a magic show to, to sort of awe us and entertain us. No, it's a sign showing us the deeper meaning of who Jesus is. Now, most of the time in, in the Gospel of John, the sign is immediately explained. I mean, just think of the way the pattern works. The, and I'll just give you a few examples. Jesus feeds 5,000 with, with just five loaves. And then he announces, I am the bread of life. The sign signifying who he is. When Jesus gives sight to a blind man, he then announces, I am the light of the world. Or when he comes to the village of Bethany and he speaks to the mourning sisters of Lazarus, in anticipation of calling Lazarus out of the tomb, he announces, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, admittedly, here in chapter 2, we don't have a direct I am statement to explain it to us. But there are enough details that we've seen there in verse 4 about pointing to the hour for which Jesus came, his very purpose. But then even in what takes place next, we're given an explanation of the glory that is on display. Because that's what verse 11 tells us, that this sign manifests the glory. It's here that you see the greatness, the grandeur, the, the power and majesty of who Jesus is. Look at verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there. Now actually, if, if you as a, a Jewish guest to this wedding had walked past, just seeing those jars would have told you what they were for. Because those details there are enough. Six stone jars? Oh, well, stone the, the, is used because ritual impurities can't be transferred to stone like they can to earthenware. A clay jar could be used to carry all kinds of products to transport it around the empire, but, but the stone is used for ritual purposes. Now, because you and I didn't grow up in little Jewish villages in Galilee, John is nice enough to explain it to us. Because he actually expects that most of the people who read the gospel didn't grow up in towns like Cana. And so he says that explicitly in, in the rest of verse 6, now there were six stone, stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Now these rites of purification were the ways in which the Jewish people could symbolically wash themselves. They could make themselves 
ritually purified to come and to bring sacrifices to God. It, it didn't make them holy. It was a symbol, a picture. And this is the command of God in the Old Testament, that they would bring sacrifices, that they had to be involved in these rituals and rites. I mean, what, what we see here in Jesus taking the, the water of the old ritual and turning it into the wine of the Messiah's wedding banquet is a picture that, that the old ceremonial order is being replaced by something better. It's a contrast between the waters of purification and the wine of the Messiah. Because it's significant that Jesus turns water into wine. Yes, he's at a party, and so it will keep the party going, but it's because that's a symbol of what the Messiah had promised to do. Turn with me to Isaiah 25. Isaiah was writing 700 years before the time of Jesus, and he gives us a picture of what the ministry of the Messiah looks like. Isaiah 25. Pastor Brian Chapel turns our, our attention to this passage to see the ways in which it, it, it shows its fulfillment in the ministry of Jesus in Cana. Isaiah 25, verse 6, we read of the work of the Messiah. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. In Cana, what the Messiah comes to do is set aside the old order with its rituals. He has come as the anointed Messiah, the high priest anointed by God to bring forgiveness to his people. He comes as God himself to bring a, a feast for the, the people of God. And so we're beginning to see the, the Messiah's banquet, the true bridegroom who loves his bride, his people. Now we can keep reading in, in Isaiah 25, verse 7. It turns our attention from the, the banquet feast to an image of death. Isaiah 25, verse 7. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. That covering, that veil, is the burial shroud in Isaiah's language, in his image. The God himself will overcome death. Now you, you look and you say, well, where do we see that in John chapter 2? And admittedly, we don't see it in John chapter 2, but remember, this is the first of his signs. This is revealing something to us about who Jesus is. We'd only have to flip a couple of pages in the Gospel of John to the next time Jesus' itinerary, though, brings him back to Cana. In John chapter 4, verse 46, we come with Jesus back here to the village of Cana. We're told in John 4, 46, so Jesus came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. And we know that in this miracle that takes place, Jesus himself will, will with his power, bring this sick son of the servant back to, back to health. It, it's, it's a fulfillment of, of what is the Messiah going to do. In John 2, He's the Messiah who brings forth the, the, the promise and the, the blessing of the, the feast. 
In John 4, he's the one who, who gets rid of, of, of the danger of death, who removes the, the shroud of death from this family in, in Capernaum. But we, we can keep reading in Isaiah to see as, as John continues to tell the story. In Isaiah 25, verse 8, we read of the Messiah's ministry. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all, the, all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. The Messiah is the one who destroys death forever. And again, we, we might fairly ask, well, Kevin, where do we see that in John 2? Again, remember, the story is continuing. The story continues, and, and John 2 is telling us we're going to that hour, that hour of Jesus' death, that hour of his glorification and his resurrection. But John will continue to write. The Gospel of John is not the only thing we have written by him in our New Testaments. We have those little letters he wrote. But then if you turned all the way to the back of your Bible, to the penultimate chapter, to Revelation 21, we see John taking the words right out of Isaiah 25 to describe the ministry of the Messiah. In Revelation 21, the Apostle John writes the vision that he was given by God. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And then he pulls that imagery out of Isaiah 25, of the banquet. The imagery that we see in John chapter 2 in Cana. And he continues in Revelation 21 too. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will, will be with them as their God. And then hear these words repeating the promise of, of Isaiah. The God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. See here in the, in the final days of history, when Jesus the Messiah returns, we see the fulfillment of what begins here in this first tiny miracle in John 2. Jesus at the banquet promises that the old has gone. The rituals won't be needed anymore because the new has come. The Messiah is here. And so this, we're told in John 2, is the first of Jesus' signs which reveals, which manifests his glory. The glory we've been told in John 1 was the glory of the only Son from the Father. And so what is the response of those that see Jesus? Jesus announcing that the, the age of the Messiah is here. Look again at, at John 2, verse 11. This, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And then look at the response. And his disciples believed in him. See, they're beginning to see that, that something more powerful than water being turned into wine has happened that they're hearing the promises of the prophets being fulfilled in God's anointed. The Messiah is here. 
The, the kingdom of the Messiah has come. This is the first pushing of the, the messianic age into the present. Wine is being given extravagantly at this wedding feast by the Messiah himself. And so this is just the start of the party. I mean, they've been at it for days probably by this point. But the party is really just getting started. And that's what the Messiah promises to us, to his church. I mean, do you believe in this Messiah? The miracle is written small. Only a few see it here at first. But the promises are enormous. The Messiah himself has come. Yes, the bridegroom in Cana is saved from embarrassment. We see the extravagance of God's grace and blessing poured out. We see the blessings of Jesus' kingdom now press into the present, into this world, the Messiah. The true bridegroom has come to rescue his church, his bride. There are beautiful moments in every wedding. But one of the things that I do when I officiate is, is at the rehearsal, is I give some, some instructions to the family, the bridal party. Now we make sure everybody knows where to stand and, and what's, what's the music cue that Christopher's going to give you to move in and out of the room. But, but then I, I encourage the family. I say, there will be that moment, that grand moment of spectacle in the wedding when the bride steps through the back doors of the sanctuary arrayed in all of her beauty and everyone will turn to look at her to see how beautiful she is. But I, I, I give the bridal party, the family, because they'll, they'll have the seats up close to the front. Those are actually the worst seats for that moment because you really can't see her all that well. But actually, if you want to see how beautiful the bride is, don't look only at her. You're sitting closer to the groom at that moment. So take that moment and look. If you want to see how beautiful she really is, see it not through your own eyes, but through his. Look at the moment of joy on his face as the one he loves steps in, arrayed in a, in a gown more beautiful than she has ever worn or will ever wear again. See, if you want to see your value, your worth, your significance, then don't look in a mirror. Look to Christ. See, the miracle at Cana, it was small. It probably involved some work of lugging water to and from a, a, a well or a spring, but it really wasn't all that much work. I mean, it's, it's so insignificant that we don't, we don't actually see the miracle happen. Like, there's no incantation, there's no magic words, there's no puff of smoke, there's, there's nothing that shows us the miracle has happened. Just the wine taken to the, the master of ceremonies, the master of the banquet. But the miracle that you and I need the hour to which Jesus points. The rescue that will come to us is very costly because this bridegroom will put himself in our place. The Savior who dies so that we might be arrayed in his righteousness, in his glory, in his beauty. His hour is coming. 
when he puts himself in our place in his death on the cross. But the party is just getting started. The wine will flow. The banquet tables will be piled high by the Messiah himself. At the feast of the Lamb, at the true bridegroom's wedding, and there will be no more tears. And even in the sanctuary, beautifully filled with flowers from a funeral, we need that reminder. Death has been conquered. The Messiah is here. The party is just getting started. Father, we thank you for the glory of Jesus shown to us in his willing sacrifice on the cross. Father, we thank you for this wedding in Cana. That, that even though the, the guest list was small, even if it was the whole village, Lord, that, that Jesus, the Savior, showed up and showed his glory to us. Father, I pray for those that, that come with hearts burdened by fear by worry, by sadness, that they would find in you the hope of the gospel, that they would find salvation today, the forgiveness of sins, the promised invitation to the great wedding feast which is coming for us. Lord, we rejoice in Jesus, our Messiah, Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Jesus, our true bridegroom, our Savior, our rescuer. We pray in his name. Amen.